The Old Testament reading is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be truthful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds in the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Gospel reading is taken from the sixth chapter of St. Matthew. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your, family, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spend. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things, and indeed your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Good morning. My name is Cindy Parker. I'm happy to be here with you all. We are just starting a new series. We started it last week. Um, that is Marks of the Church's Mission. 
So what are the things that are important to the church and should mark who we are as a church? Now this means resurrection, yes, but we're thinking a little bit wider than just resurrection in terms of what is the global church? What are some of the characteristics of the global church? And what does that mean if we lean into that as resurrection? Um, so we started this last week and Dr. Unstrasser started us off with discipleship. And it's a very intriguing conversation that is provoking a lot of conversation with people here in the church. And we're gonna keep that conversation going. Today, we're talking about the care of creation. Now, I don't know if this sounds surprising as something we should really put on the top five characteristics of the church, care of creation. I would argue it is fundamentally important to the church and has been woven into the mission that God has given the church from the very beginning. But when we say care of creation, it just doesn't always sound as Christian-y as discipleship even, or evangelism, some of these other characteristics of the church. So we're gonna pause and we're just going to explore um, what happens if we bring this up in our uh, consciousness and if we are using this, if we're purposefully pulling this into our common conversation as the church. Now there's a few things I should say before we get started. Um, there's an irony of so many of us driving to here today and getting a parking pass um, and we're meeting together in a great big huge building that has cracks in some of the windows and kind of leaks energy out. So I get the whole idea that we're not perfectly doing this. Um, we're just asking ourselves, how can we pull this into our conversation? And why does the conversation belong in the church? Not just us as individuals, because I know there are a lot of you who are raising your own chickens, who bike everywhere you go and are super uh, like a proponent of that on social media, who make entire careers over sustainable food systems. So there's a lot of people who are in this room who are doing a lot already. So this is not a conversation that is meant to guilt us into anything. It's a conversation that is just supposed to remind us of why we think this is so important. There are several reasons we could say, why is it that this conversation has kind of slipped out of church conversations? It has slipped out into just the modern, like what society is talking about, but there are fewer and fewer churches who are holding on to this as a core characteristic of our mission as God's people. And there's several reasons for that. There's been selective storytelling that is going on. So we've been telling stories of God's mission and Jesus's mission in the world but we fail to talk about how the world is changed by Jesus's mission. And so therefore what we should be mindful of as well. And of course, in the modern American church, environmental concerns has been connected to politics. And because of that, we've not wanted to bring that conversation into the church because we're afraid of what it's gonna snag along the way and pull into the church as well. And so we've just left that conversation outside the doors of the church. 
The thing I hear most often, because I'm always talking about land and the environment and what the Bible says about all of this stuff, I love this. And the comment I get most often back to me is, but the Bible says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, right? So this somehow it's gotten, it's bad theology actually, and that's not actually what the Bible says. I mean, that is a phrase, but that's, we're interpreting it incorrectly. But it's gotten so woven into the Christian idea of um, we're escaping this place. And so there's a new heaven and a new earth. And so we don't need to pay so much attention to it right now. We also, and I would say especially because we, Resurrection, are an urban church, we are quite removed from the visuals of what is going on, of the denuding our landscape, of the um, soil of the earth losing its black richness and being bleached, and so it's not viable soil anymore. Sandy Richter wrote a book. She's a friend of mine. Um, she's an excellent scholar. She used to teach at Wheaton. She released a book fairly recently that's called Stewards of Eden. And in the very beginning of the book, she tells a story of how she and a biology professor at Wheaton created a new class that the, the purpose of the class was to talk about biblical theology and biology together. And all these students signed up. And in the beginning of the class, she asked questions of the students and said, why are you here? Why are you taking this particular class? And in the book, she says, every single one of her students said, I love being outside. I love camping. I feel closest to God when I'm outside, but I don't feel like I can bring that kind of opinion into the church. And so they were taking her class just so they could get this biblical theological view of why that is a fundamental conversation to actually have in the church. So this is what we're gonna talk about today. Um, Fast and Furious, but I would highlight her book as one, um, there's actually several. Of course, Ellen Davis also has opinions on this and I am always fast to recommend everything Ellen Davis. Um, but there are lots of different resources to go into it a little bit more deeply. But I just wanna highlight just a couple things and to say just these couple things are the reason why this conversation belongs in our church. So we're going to start with Genesis. So at the very beginning in Israelite storytelling of the beginning of the universe, of the beginning of creation, in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, humanity is tied very closely to the natural world. I mean, Genesis 2, it's the humans created from the humus of the soil or the Adam from the Adamah. There's a, a purposeful relationship that is there. And the humans in Genesis 2 are given the work to work to guard and to protect the garden. It's sacred work. But in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, we're getting kind of structures of the world and how the structure of the world works. And at the end of it, <clears throat> we get this portion that we have here in the bulletin. When God says, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, 
over the cattle, over all the wild animals of the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And if we pause, there's a couple things that are sitting underneath this narrative. So people who are reading this in, in like originally, so the original Israelites, as they're reading this, there's two things primarily that hang out in the background. One is it was very common in the ancient Near East for ancient Near Eastern kings in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in Syria. They would create images, statues, of themselves and place that all over their dominion as a constant reminder to everyone in that dominion who they serve and who the one who has supreme authority actually is. So that is one kind of concept that would have been in the minds of everyone. Another concept is Every single year, often in this yearly appreciation of the king, there are ceremonies, and those ceremonies involve retelling creation narratives. And in these creation narratives in the ancient Near East, most of the people surrounding the Israelites had a story that went, these gods had a conflict, the gods battle it out, Ultimately, we get the creation of the world, but now the gods are in charge of this created world, but they don't want to do all of the work. And so they created humans in order to do the work of the world and to serve the gods. Now, what is interesting is the Israelite text is different in that it talks about this purposeful creation of humanity and it being one of equality and honoring. It's a dignity. And it's not in this text, but in the Israelite text, this creation narrative comes with a Sabbath. And the Sabbath is one that is purposeful to say, humans are here not just to work the land and serve the God, but to be in community with God, to take a moment and pause and just be in relationship with that God. But there's also the recognition that the land, the earth, the cosmos is God, is God's, it belongs to God. And he's putting his images, both male and female, scattered throughout his domain to represent who he is as the king of that terrain. Now that's not so problematic. It's the verses that come right after this that have been problematic for the modern church. So it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And I'll just point out, this is the second time God has said this. He has already given this promise of blessing to the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and the beasts on the land. God has already told all of these creatures in the created world to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So he's doing the same thing with the humans, but then adds on and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, if you do a history of how the church has translated and interpreted these verses, 
at no time in the pre, are there any pre-modern Jewish or Christian communities that ever would have interpreted this as total human control over all of creation. That interpretation that seems to hang out in our atmosphere a little bit more is something that emerged in 17th century England and then part of Western Europe. And it emerged as an interpretation right as we have the emergence of a new economic system of capitalism. And as capitalism is growing and as we're developing, there's a, a growth in human knowledge and the use of technology. And some of this is happening without a whole lot of self-questioning. We start bringing that context into the biblical text and the church started teaching that humans have full control over all of the earth and it led to an exploitation of the earth. This is not part of the original design. I think the actual question that people have asked that we need to get back to asking is how do we wield this authority that God is giving humans in Genesis 1? How do we wield this authority in order to realize God's blessing of being fruitful and multiplying? Not just humans, not the human-centric story, but so that the birds can can feel that, so the fish can feel that, so that the creatures on the land all get to experience this benevolent sovereignty of the creating God. So this could be part of, I mean, we could continue down this road and this is a really important conversation for us to be having. And we could say this is embedded and woven into the foundational fabric of Israelite ideas of creation. But what does that mean practically? Well, the Bible goes on and we could pull out all kinds of verses. In fact, Deuteronomy has a lot to say. Um, Deuteronomy loves the land, which is one of the reasons I love Deuteronomy. But Deuteronomy loves the land. And if we look carefully at the Israelite law code, so the system of when God is saying, I'm going to teach my people how to flourish on the land, these are the ways that they do that and do it well. And Deuteronomy, and actually, I mean, all of the law codes, but I'm gonna focus on Deuteronomy. When we're paying attention, really interesting things come up. And it starts with one of the biggest lessons of Deuteronomy, which is the land is a gift. It's given to God's people, but it comes with responsibility. They don't just get to take the gift and do anything they want with it, but the gift comes with the assumption that you are going to steward the gift well. And so what does that mean? In Deuteronomy's terms, it would say things like, there are all these laws scattered throughout that say, your land gets to rest just like you do. So God built into the system of sacred time a moment to pause, to be in relationship with him. And God weaves in this idea that it goes the same for your land. And that is the thing that protects the viability of your land. It also goes on to talk about what do you do with your domesticated animals? So these animals that you need so that you can farm the land. And there are all these really interesting, easy to skip over verses that talk about, do not muzzle an ox while the ox is helping you thresh your grain. 
Well, that sounds like something in a super far away universe than anything that we relate to. Except when you say, for a people who are relying on subsistence living, they're growing the food they're eating that year. And they're going to be hungry for a good portion of the year. When you have a law that says the animal that is helping you create in the process of your food making isn't going to be muzzled, which means that ox can eat the grain while it's threshing the grain, means that even for your domesticated animals, you can't extract all of their work without taking care of them in the process. But it doesn't stop there. It actually has all these laws about what do you do with wild animals? So you're going out somewhere and there's a bird who is sitting on a nest and there's young there. Deuteronomy says you have to shoo away the mother bird and then you can take the young birds. Right, it's a process of you can't completely destroy generations of these wild animals. You have to make sure they can continue to prosper. It, it makes sure that we put guardrails around our own consumption, that there's not just wanton killing of wild animals. But not only that, and not only Israelite context, Deuteronomy has these really interesting laws that are completely unique that no other, to, that I know of, no other ancient Near Eastern kingdom has. And it's laws about how do you treat trees even when you're going out and having war with someone else. You cannot destroy the fruit-bearing trees of your enemy. Now this is something this land ecology warfare is what most kings in the ancient Near East did. It would take, it takes almost a generation for an olive tree to grow and be producing enough olives to take care of a family. And so raiding kings would come in and destroy all the olive trees, destroy all the trees that are, that are providing for the humans that are living in that place. So they would destroy the environment in order to destroy the people. And God said, you're not allowed to do that. As representatives of who I am, you can't do that. So if these are the things that God cares about in how his people behave to reflect him, to be his image in his kingdom, these are things that we should be thinking about as well, about caring for all these different soil, domesticated animals, wild animals, it, even land outside our territory, right? These are all things that are super important. Now, this conversation about land, about being mindful, about curbing our own appetite, about not extracting, this goes throughout all of scripture. And all of scripture goes through this process of talking about how creation shouts forth praise to God and God pays attention. And we as his images, we as his image bearers, we as the ones who are tasked to go on mission with God and reflect God out in the world should be doing the same thing. I wanted to um, pause and think about Psalm 104. We read a very small portion of Psalm 104 in our responsive reading. The whole entire psalm, I mean, it, I wanted to do the whole thing in our responsive reading, but, you know, time. 
space in the bulletin, all those things. I love this psalm. It is such a beautiful, poetic painting of who God is and what God thinks of the natural world. And it finishes with a call to his people to act in the same way. I'm not gonna read the whole thing here, but please go read it. It's so delightful. I love it's so environmental, even in the pictures that it chooses to talk about. I mean, it starts with, praise the Lord, my soul, Lord, my God, you are great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. And this is fabulous because this is good wilderness imagery. This is, uh, if you're ever out with the Bedouin who have goat hair tents that get pulled taunt like onto the ground to provide the shelter, when you look up, you can see through some of the fabric, some of the weaving, and it looks like you're looking at the stars. So you have the blackness of the tent with the light that penetrates in portions and it's using that imagery here. So delightful. Um, by verse 10, we've moved up to hill country imagery. So mountainous imagery. And it says, he makes springs pour water into ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. It's so delightful. It's just this picture of God almost poking a hole in the mountainside so that springs of fresh water come out for the purpose of watering the wild creatures. So the wild donkeys and the birds are being sustained by God's activity. And then it goes on because now we're getting more of the domestic, domesticated he waters the mountains from his upper chambers, right? God is the one responsible for the rain. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for cattle, plants for people to cultivate, bring forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. Right, so even the domesticated, the environmental, the, the food production part, God is responsible for that as well. Later in the psalm, then he is talking, it's this big call out, God's people are supposed to be like God. And if God cares to water the wild animals and the crevices and the birds that are in the air, and if God cares to provide the right kind of food for cattle and the food production that we humans get to consume, we need to as well. This is why caring for creation belongs in the top five list of what is a mark of the Christian church. We could talk about, I mean, where do we go from here, right? I mean, this is maybe just a, this is why we should be having this conversation, but how do we keep the conversation going, right? That's always the key part. What do we do? Um, and there's always the, go to Wissahickon. Wissahickon is probably my most favorite sanctuary in, in this city. I think it's amazing. Go be in nature, be influenced by nature, and make that connection of you are the steward of this place. There's always a bajillion books, and I'm happy to give recommendations, but you could start with Stewards of Eden by Sandy Richter. That's a really, really great one. 
Some of you, actually a good number of you, last year in January, you might remember Ryan Vrogendui did a fantastic class about how do we be mindful, like how are we conscientious consumers, um, thinking through food systems, and what does that mean, and what's the theological backing for that? Um, we still have the videos of that class. If you took the class and want to refresh your memory, if you didn't take the class but would like to, Ryan gave me permission to say we can redistribute that. So be in touch with me and I can give you links to those videos. These are all ways to just say, this conversation belongs to us. And there is a responsibility that we should have and we're just going to keep this conversation going. It's also really quite sweet that in this liturgical moment, I mean, we're, we're getting ready to come to the table and we are talking about and thinking about God's sacrificial saving act in history and how we are nourished by that. And we do it using bread and wine. There is on the Sabbath, the Jews have a prayer, um, a portion of prayers, but as they break bread and as they drink wine, they say, uh, blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth grain from the field. And I just think this is such a beautiful, yes, God is the one providing for us, and our task is then to care for that natural world so that we are then reflecting him as his images in the world. Will you pray with me? Holy creator, God who in the beginning in the fabric of the creation imbued it with a blessing to be prosperous, to go out and to flourish, and then tasked humans to be a part of that intelligent stewardship, to understand the science even of the environment, to understand the ecosystem, and then to find our place within it, and to do it for the flourishing of all creatures and ourselves. Just as you watered the the wild beasts of the forest, and as you care for the domesticated animals and how you give us food, may we also turn and make it part of our mission as we go out into the world to be just as mindful of the created world as you are. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.